Right, hopefully you've got Acts chapter 21 open. Paul, would you come here? Now, Paul, do you have a belt? Can I have your belt, please? <laughs> well, will your trousers stay up? Well, they Yeah, oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. The Holy Spirit says, Paul, if you go to Syria, you'll be arrested, you'll be bound, and you'll be handed over to the Russians. Thank you. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a laugh, isn't it? Okay, well, following the Miletus Leadership Conference that we heard a little bit about last week, Paul is now keen to get to Jerusalem as quickly as he can. And Luke describes the expedient route that he takes. It will come up on the map behind me at the beginning of chapter 21. We're not going to look at that. He spends a night here. He spends a week there. But Luke gives us the most focus on his time in Caesarea. Caesarea, a magnificent city rebuilt by Herod the Great in honor of Augustus Caesar, as other cities were known as well by that same name. And it was on the sea by the Mediterranean coast, 70 miles from Jerusalem, a port, if you like, to serve the city, an administrative center for that Roman province. And that's where we're going today from verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Heavenly Father, I just pray that by your Spirit, who is so here amongst us this morning, you would help us grapple with this text, understand it, and apply it to our lives and the life of this church for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great. Thank you. Luke has included this little detail in their journeys because I think it teaches us something about the gift of prophecy. And I want to draw out some of that this morning under three broad headings. Firstly, that the gift of prophecy is for all sorts. Secondly, that the gift of prophecy can be hazardous. And thirdly, that the gift of prophecy helps us continue in God's mission. 
Verse 8, let's just look at the second half of verse 8 here. It's Luke talking, he wrote the book, he's one of the companions and travellers of Paul in these chapters particularly, and he says this, we stayed at the house of Philip. Philip? Which Philip? Philip the evangelist. Oh, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This little snippet that Luke gives us, it must be there for a reason. Why Luke? You haven't told us about everybody you've stayed with on your journeys. And when you have given us a name, you haven't told us their family makeup and background every time. But I think Luke is deliberate in his detail. In calling him Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, he's first of all just distinguishing him from Philip, one of the original 12 disciples and followers of Jesus and apostles. Because there was a Philip there too. So we now know which Philip, at least, we're talking about. He's also making reference to some of Philip's story that Luke may have got on this day in Caesarea from him, uh, that he wrote in Acts chapter 6, chapter 8. There's your homework. Have a look at it. It's very fascinating. You see, we find there that Philip and Stephen and five others, making seven, hence reference to seven, were seen to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of, the, of wisdom in the Spirit. And so they were selected to administrate, if you like, the very first food bank in the life of the church. Because the church had grown significantly, and there were a number of people who were really at the, at the, on the breadline and, and underneath it. And there was some ethnic tension going on in this multicultural church that had started in Jerusalem. And so they needed some wise, spirit-filled people just to administrate the kind of the, the relief to those who really did have need at that time. But you see, Paul and Philip had met before. And Luke tells us something about it in his previous chapters. You see, years earlier, when Paul and Stephen and the five were doing their thing, Paul was a hater of Christians. He was actually the death murderer of Stephen, one of the seven with Philip. And as Stephen, the first martyr, fell as the stones hit him, there was Paul presiding over it under his previous name of Saul. And I just think, this is not really on topic, but I just think Luke's given us this detail we mustn't miss. He's highlighting the grace of God again. The grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has so saved and so transformed Saul now called Paul into something he wasn't. And has and made, by the grace of God, just reconciled Philip a mate of Stephen, to Paul, that he would have him under his roof to stay. I think this is jaw-dropping grace evidence. So much so is the grace of God all over this, that they are partnering together in the continuation of God's mission on earth. That is grace. I get excited by that. It's just a little detail. Thank you, Luke, for it. But also, another little detail, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay, we don't know anything else about them. We don't get any of their prophecies in this little passage about a prophecy. But we get that detail. What are you trying to tell us here, Paul? Are you trying to help us as a life group get a hamper together for them so we know all the component parts of the household? That's an in-joke for us as a church because we're doing that at the moment. We're we're getting hampers together and trying to personalise them to individual families. Well, I don't think that's the case. Luke doesn't want us to miss the point of how counter-cultural this life in God 
this church that Jesus is building really was and still is. So much so that even young, unmarried ladies, some of whom were teenagers, were at the forefront of the spiritual life of this new community that God had made. Prophesying daughters. These were young. They got married relatively young, I think, in those days. I think Luke is just highlighting for us evidence that the Holy Spirit really has come. He he describes it at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We've looked at it in previous weeks, I'm sure. And he quotes Peter, who stood up to try and explain what's going on. And Peter, in turn, quotes Joel, the prophet. And he says this, because this is what will happen in the last days. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. It's added to the Joel bit. Young ladies, I'm looking over here. Some of you are young. I don't discount that. Young ladies, you can prophesy by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait until you're older, more mature in Christ, until you're married, until you've left home. You can be filled with the Spirit and prophesy. And I could say the same to any kind of gender, ethnic, kind of age group category amongst us. Middle-aged men, you can prophesy if you're in Christ and you're full of the Spirit. I don't think Luke wants us to miss this. You who are shy, you can prophesy. You who have been in church or been a Christian for many years but never done it before, you can prophesy because the Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh. These are the days of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, we don't get their prophecies, but we get this prophecy, Agabus. Agabus' prophecy that Luke records is, he, is enough to remind us, however, that all sorts of us can prophesy. Even cloth-eared pussycats loved by Emily. Oh no, that's Bagpus. That, this is Agabus, and that's a joke for the over-40s. Never mind, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh dear, they're going with pages. Let's see if we can pick them up in the right order. That'd be interesting, won't it? So to conclude. Oh no, 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 Sorry. <laughs> You see, the Holy Spirit wants to speak directly to you. And he wants to use you, (laughs) excuse me, cough there, to bring the immediacy of God's voice to others. Well, let's look at prophecy can be hazardous. Verse 12, when we heard this, this Agabus prophecy that we enacted this morning, you've got that now, yeah? We and the people were pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go uh, to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Personally, I don't understand the theological reasons why some churches believe that prophecy was for then and not for today. I, I honestly just don't follow the logic of it. However, I can and do sympathize with the pastoral reasons for wanting to downplay Ignore or prohibit prophecy today, because it can be hazardous. Thankfully, though, the Bible doesn't hide the hazards or edit out the errors of the early church, and we can learn from them. And even Luke, at his own expense and embarrassment, is giving us this story, because Luke joined in the chorus of saying, Paul, don't go! Don't go to Jerusalem! And we'll find in a minute that that's possibly the wrong conclusion to come to. And Luke was writing this. So at his own embarrassment, he's given us an example so that we can learn. Because you see, the church is about people, not buildings. 
the people is the church is highly relational with family, and the church is to be spirit-filled. That's what we're aiming for. And the Bible helps us with examples like this to navigate the hazards and to experience the benefits. I've just got two things under this heading. Firstly, framework, and then secondly, family. It can be helpful, I'm finding, to break prophecy down into three component parts. You might think that's a little bit cold and analytical, but I think it is quite straightforward, and it does help. It certainly helps me. To think of prophecy as revelation, interpretation, and application. Revelation simply meaning, what did God actually say? What was the original stimulus that God revealed to you that made you think, mm, perhaps God is speaking to me. In this case, a revelation came to Agabus, who felt we don't know how, that God was telling him to tie up his hands and legs with the belt of Paul. That idea came to him somehow, and he thought, mm, that's God. And so he did it. We had one of those examples this morning, actually, in our prayer time before the meeting. And someone was asked to go in the middle, and someone else said, I'm going to walk around you. A demonstrative prophetic action. It's the same as this. We're doing the same stuff. Be encouraged. And God speaks to us, though, in a whole raft of ways. That's why, for example, when, not if, you have a sozo prayer ministry appointment, a long name and scary title, I know, but basically a way of hearing from God and growing in him. We do it in this church. We'd love you to come on one. We often ask you this question. What do you hear, see, or feel? Because we're, we're asking you, what's God saying to you? And it's a whole raft of ways he might speak. And he might speak to you in one way and to me in another. Sometimes God does show us things, something in the room, something natural. I mean, he's just highlighted it in a different way. Or in our mind's eye, a scene is played out. Or, or maybe a word or a phrase comes to us in our mind that we know is not of our thought processes. That God has placed there. We know mm, God's trying to break in. It may be that we sense something. We may have had a dream like we've heard this morning and conclude that's not just the cheese, that's God. That's Pippa exampled earlier. Secondly, the interpretation stage simply means, well, what did God mean by that? And in this case, Agabus has got it. He's interpreted this hand-binding drama that he unfolds as meaning that Paul would be arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles when he gets to Jerusalem. So on this occasion, we had the revelation and the interpretation, and no one seems to be disputing them. Nobody then seemed to dispute it. In fact, Agabus did have a bit of a track record with the prophetic. He'd accurately predicted a famine across the whole Roman Empire, and that prompted the churches to have a special offering, a bit like we had this morning in advance. You can read about it in Acts chapter 11, 28. But no one has disputed it since that Agabus got the revelation right and he got the interpretation right. And in fact, the rest of Acts gives us the hindsight, actually, because Luke follows this story and lo and behold, Paul goes to Jerusalem, he does get arrested, he does get handed over to the Gentiles and we see how the story unfolds and how God's mission on earth continued nonetheless. And the application, the third stage of understanding prophetic words, is simply, what does God want me or us to do as a result, if anything? 
And I think this, 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 this is the moment, this is why it's helpful to look at these different steps, because we can see what's going on now in this example. This is where there seems to be some initial disagreement between different parties. And actually, I think it's already happened before on a similar line, just a couple of stops earlier. We didn't read it, but if you look back at verse 4 in chapter 21, it says this. They're in a place called Tyre. And through the Spirit, they, the church there, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That sounds familiar now. I think this is Luke's shorthand of saying it was through the Spirit again, because it was through prophetic revelation and interpretation that there was this warning to Paul about the dangers that lied ahead in Jerusalem. At that point, um, it was only the local church that was saying, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul and his team were concluding, no, that's not the right application. The application is we are meant to go, but we've just been forewarned. So that happened previously, but now there was a growing body of people, maybe only Paul on his own, concluding, no, 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 I really should go to Jerusalem. His team, it would appear, and now uh, with the, the others, maybe even those prophesying daughters had concluded the same. We don't know. I don't know about Agabus. It's unclear what his opinion would have been on the application. Maybe Agabus is, is demonstrating some wisdom in the prophetic. He's not said because he doesn't know. He got the revelation and he brought that. He got the interpretation and he brought that. He's not going to speculate over here. Likewise, we can stop at the point on which we know that's what I've got from God. Yeah, don't, don't add to it. Maybe. We don't know. But I think we've got to come to the conclusion who got the application wrong. Did Paul, did everybody else? I suggest it's everybody else. You see, some prophetic words like this are a warning to stop something. Uh, however, in this case, it was a warning to prepare for something. And in fact, the more I've looked into it, the more I've come to conclude, and I'm separated by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles from Paul, uh, but that he was already prepared in God for this, for this warning and for its fulfillment. He says in verse 11, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. See, for Paul, this prophetic word was the latest episode in a series of prophetic words that fitted into his growing understanding of what God wanted of him, of the specific mission that God had for Paul to fulfill, of the things that God had been speaking to Paul about over many years, if not decades. He often refers to his main purpose in life as his race. He refers to it as that kind of analogy. In three of his letters, Paul describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, in Romans chapter 15, he talks about how Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, a particular verse in Isaiah, had become very significant to him. It was like it was a prophetic statement over his life, but he was still exploring its full definition and precise meaning. But it was compelling him to take the gospel to unreached people groups. That was his mm, in God. And it was getting clearer and clearer as he, as he went into it. He sensed that going to Jerusalem was part of God's outworking of all that prophetic input he'd had, at least by Acts chapter 19, verse 21, just a couple of chapters earlier, if you want to look at it later. I even wonder, but with great humility, because I might meet him one day, whether Paul was perhaps even encouraged by this prophetic word. I said, what? <laughs> I wonder, 
because he was only going to be arrested and not killed. And I wonder if he thought he might be killed. I wonder if he thought I might be going the same way as Jesus went. Not in the same kind of cosmic way, but the same earthly way. Jesus had this, this draw, this prophetic calling to, to go to Jerusalem, and the urgency came upon him. Now was the time. And he understood that it was going to involve suffering. We've been singing about it. We, he understood that ultimately it would involve victory. And he tried to explain it to his disciples, and they didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't get it. But that was Jesus' journey. And Paul, oh, Jerusalem. Oh, someone else had that prophetic calling. I wonder, not only suffering, maybe death. And some encouragement, possibly, that you're going to be arrested. Okay, good. But not killed. And secondly, you might be encouraged because he, the detail of this prophecy said that he would end up in the hands of the Gentiles. Obviously, perhaps, the Roman authorities. That detail might have delighted him. Because he knew he was called to the unreached, to the Gentile world, even though he was a Jew. And so, strangely, being called to Jerusalem was going to become the key and the passport into the Roman world, albeit via extradition. Because his heart was for Rome, and then for Spain, and then the regions beyond. He was thinking of us here, perhaps, on the British Isles. That had been his stated ambition. And now he saw prophetically that the things were linked together for the first time. Thankfully, the story does resolve really well, chapter, in verse 14. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And the team headed off to Jerusalem together, helped on their way by members of Caesarean church, I don't think it was a case of resignation. I think, oh, all right, Paul, we'll have your way. I don't think it was agree to disagree. I don't think it was, you know, are you going to come back and say, mm, I told you so? Um, it wasn't that kind of attitude. I think they come around. Okay, we don't really want this because they love Paul. But we can understand why you're applying it in that way. And we're with you. We want to support you. Just a few little encouragements, firstly, for us as we grow in the prophetic. Um, if you get a prophetic word it, wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got everything wrong. I think that's encouraging. You may have heard from God, the revelation may be correct. You're hearing God, be encouraged. But how you interpreted it, or perhaps how you applied it, may have been wrong. So let's learn, let's learn from others, let's get others' input, and let's move on. Secondly, God will prepare you to receive prophetic words. If you're thinking here, oh my, what if God's going to bring me a prophetic word? And there may be some, or there should be some awe about that, but be, be encouraged that God will prepare you like he prepared Paul. You sometimes wonder, well, why don't you give us everything up front about our life? It'd be so helpful. Just get on a memo, beginning of my life, and oh, okay, I'll go not... Really? We don't just want God involved at the beginning, do we? We want him with us. He's with us on the journey. He wants to speak to us, prepare us for the next thing, give us the next stepping stone into the things he's calling us to. He wants it to be a relational journey. It's how we get there as well as where we're going when we get there. I'm encouraged by that. We sometimes worry God might ask us to do something we don't really want to do. I don't, I don't think God really 
works like that. I'm not saying there's not going to be unpleasant things ahead. Very well, maybe. But he will prepare us in advance for them. I can only think of one prophetic word I received, and I thought, no, no, please, no. I really did. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, But I did, in discussion with others, conclude, no, perhaps it wasn't for me. Perhaps it was for others. And I was content with that as we prayed it through and chewed over it together. I think the other example that this this, uh, passage gives us, which is wonderful, about best practice in the prophetic, is, is within the family of God. It's amongst brothers and sisters, believers that we know, as well as those from outside. And it's just so dripping with relationship. It's so dripping with the cords of love is this section. That's why there's tears and snot <laughs> as they kind of, kind of work this out. It's because of love, love, love. And so I think there's some sense in, in if you've got a prophetic word for somebody, uh, get somebody else involved to hear it at the time, perhaps. Just ask someone to come in, someone who's there, someone in the life group, someone you know, just to hear it. I think it's sensible as well, if you've, heard, if you've received a prophetic word, to, and it may have been in private, to share it with others you know and trust. Let's look at this, let's share this, let's get your wisdom on it and pray it through. I think there's a lot of safety in that. I think there's a danger as well, of course, and it comes out in here, doesn't it? Because we so want the best for one another, we can sometimes be blinkered to what God's will is. I think that happened here a little bit. But actually, no, no, the better benefit is, no, no, we can work this through together. We can see God's will in it all, and, and let's share. And thirdly, prophecy helps us to continue in God's mission. Uh, uh, maybe because it's fitting to end our series like this, but it does tie in. I'd love to read the last two verses of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, 30 and 31. It says this, about Paul. For two whole years, Paul stayed there. Where's there? In Rome, the very heart of the Gentile world at the time. He was in his own rented house. He welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Hallelujah. Two years of just fruitful ministry. They're in the center of the Gentile world. Wow, this was the sweet spot. Not, didn't come about perhaps how you might have asked if you were Paul, but there he was. I think no wonder, 10 years later, on death row, Paul was able to pen to his apprentice Timothy, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Timothy 4, 7, of course, as he looked forward to his heavenly reward. And I know we're good, perhaps, at times, at viewing the prophetic gift as a means for encouraging one another. And it is, and it should be. That's good and proper. Paul reminds the Corinthian church in one of his letters, who were very immature at times and very inconsiderate to one another, he said this about the prophetic, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening and encouraging and their comfort. And that's good. We've got to get that perspective. However, I think there is a higher purpose of which these hang to the prophetic. And if you like, just simple spiritual niceties. There's a higher value, a higher role of the prophetic. is to help the church effectively continue God's mission on earth. We're going to need encouragement for that. 
We need courage. We're going to need strength. We're going to need comfort at times as we continue God's mission on earth to advance his kingdom in every sector of society, through every ethnic group around the planet. Jesus gifts us with prophets alongside the other ministries listed in Ephesians 4. We had apostles last week. Same thing about evangelists, people like Quincy. Same about people who are prophets, uh, sorry, pastor teachers and others. These gifts are there for the higher purpose, to equip us for works of service. The people of God for works of service. And I think the equipping is for the front line of mission to the world. The equipping is for our place of work and our work life. The equipping is for our community engagement. Like playing badminton on a Wednesday. Like serving at the food bank or the winter night shelter. For going shopping in the local shops. It's for our front line of relationships. Home, next door, colleagues, family abroad. Prophecy should therefore, I think, be speaking into our primary vocation, our primary occupation in the world as much as it does in our serving within the church. Someone once prophesied over me the word tear fund. It was just a revelation. I didn't get any interpretation or any application. Just tear fund. And it wasn't quite like that. What they didn't know was that I was once rejected for an internship with tear fund which is, if you don't know, a Christian international relief agency. And I'd received other prophetic words on a similar vein. In fact, I remember one about fair trade when I was in my early 20s. And you can ask, well, how's all that been worked out? Well, I I believe, looking back now, there was a prophetic thread in my life on that topic. I was very passionate about international trade wasn't very clever, but I was passionate about it. And actually, the job I went on to do after those prophetic words for six years, the one I was doing before I came here, involved a lot of market research. And you say, oh, how can that be an application to your prophetic thread, Tim? Well, I, I developed skills as market research. I've been in the industry 12 years. And then I came to this company that, amongst other things, enabled me to do a whole host of market research on the topic of ethical shopping and high animal welfare, uh, uh, social sustainability, environmental sustainability, etc. All those kind of topics for food and grocery companies. Hundreds of food and grocery companies buying my research, hearing me on platforms speak about it, uh, and and commissioning me to do bespoke research for them on that kind of topic. I believe that was some outworking of that. My shopper research was included in a special every four-year private forum of the chief executives of major UK supermarkets and food manufacturers on the theme of social sustainability. I was just a small cog, to be honest, in all of that. But that wasn't outworking. That was a kingdom impact that came about, I think, through some prophetic encouragements along the way to keep pursuing those kind of themes. Let me just end by talking about prophecy in the church here, Kings. As a church... We need more of the prophetic gift. I was delighted to see a number of gifts being used today, which I would put under the prophetic banner. But we also need to grow in the prophetic alongside a growing character. 
I need that. And wisdom, I need that, to handle more of the prophetic and to respond to it well. I just want to mention a few ways in which that's, I think, been reflected quite naturally in our recent church life. This isn't contrived. I wasn't trying to get these examples in knowing I was going to preach on it. (laughs) Believe me. So firstly, at the last Tuesday evening prayer and share, there were over 30 of us. Wonderful. I think it could be over 30 of us every time. Uh, But we had time to reflect on four prophetic words that had been brought to us as a church over recent times. We went through some of them again. We heard them from the originators again. We prayed into them. Interestingly, they came through four different ladies and women in the church. So there we go. We have our own four prophetic daughters, if you like. But part of weighing of prophecy is praying prophecy. The application, I'd suggest to you, of every prophecy is always to pray and sometimes to do. Last week, uh, Kevin, Quinty and I, just so you know, got together for a couple of hours and we shared some prophetic words we'd each received individually over the preceding six months. You think you haven't had any and then you look back, oh, there's quite a few. And we just spent a couple of hours sifting through them, keeping them alive in our hearts, using it as fuel to pray for one another. I just want you to know that we do that. I know some of you do as well in different contexts. And thirdly, just so you know, and this is no coincidence, I don't think, that this week, um, two of us are going to a three-day prophetic conference in Bedford, hosted by one of the New Frontiers churches there. Uh, Kevin Rose and Jenny Meyer are going there together. Uh, They're travelling together and then going to enjoy that conference with others uh, and bring something back, I trust, of God's gift and catalyst amongst us. But just as we end this series, as well as uh, my talk this morning, I just want to reflect on the fact that it's possible, having followed Paul's journeys for the last few months, to feel rather intimidated by him. I don't know if that's you. (laughs) Maybe you don't. I know it's not all about Paul, and we've tried to emphasise that as we've gone through, but he has been there in every story, and he's done all sorts. But I think Paul would be the first to say, don't run my race. Paul didn't do everything. Oh, no. (laughs) He just did everything God asked of him. And God has called you, as he's called me, as he's called us, to continue his mission on earth in different, specific, unique ways. See, Paul was as faithful and fruitful as he was focused on what God had asked of him. And we need to be equally focused if we're to be faithful and fruitful. And it's the prophetic gift and the prophetic input ongoing throughout our lives which steers us and helps us into that channel. It's the prophetic gift that points us and prepares us for the particular purposes and the mission that he has for us. Amen? Amen. Great. Wonderful. Why don't we stand together? I'd love the band to come out again if that's possible.